She's in the hospital, you silly girl. Yes, call her there. I can't. I've got too much to do. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. So, <laughs> it's all forgotten now, and let's hear no more about it. So that's two egg mayonnaise, a prawn Goebbels, a Herman Goring, and four colded sellers. <laughs> No, wait a minute, I got a bit confused here. Sorry, I got a bit confused because everyone keeps mentioning the war. So could you what's the matter? It's all right. The Economist mentioned war, but no one else did. I'm talking about the UK's recent emergency alert test. It happened on a Sunday afternoon, carefully scheduled between the London Marathon and the FA Cup semi-final. And for ten seconds, every mobile phone almost everyone, buzzed loudly in a nationwide test of the new system. It's intended to be used in an emergency to warn us of... well, of what exactly? To look at the news in the lead-up to the test, you might think that Britain had been moved across the globe and dropped suddenly in a zone battered by storms and wildfire and tempests. Whereas... Most of the time in Britain, the weather is exactly as it is today from my window. A bit dull, a bit drizzly, a bit depressing. But the chatter was all about extreme weather and how this will alert us when it's heading our way. In the words of the government, the alert is intended to warn us of, quote, danger to life nearby. And it gave examples. Severe flooding, fires, extreme weather. The BBC said likewise, mentioning floods, wildfire or terror attacks. The Telegraph threw natural disasters into the mix. Now, this wasn't an exhaustive search, but in the many news articles I did look at, in the countdown to the test, only The Economist mentioned war. But even then, it wasn't anything as blunt as suggesting the alert would warn the population if an incoming air attack was launched against the country. No, it spoke of war, but war at a reasonable distance, mentioning Ukraine as one of the reasons why so-called resilience is back on the government agenda. A quote from The Economist, Climate change, the threat of a no-deal Brexit and the return of war to Europe have also pushed resilience back up the agenda. Oh, resilience. We used to call it civil defence. But that phrase is... Too laden with, uh, yes, war. So, towards the end of the Cold War, Britain began dropping that phrase in favour of home defence. And then, after the Cold War, having stripped most of our sirens away, we started swapping home defence for terms like emergency planning or civil contingency or, in favour these days, resilience. Now, resilience is a nice word. It doesn't carry the baggage of bomb and blitz with it. Resilience is a clean word. And it means being tough and hardy and able to spring back from any upset, to adapt to change. Resilience is a desirable thing. The government like resilience. But they don't seem to like talk of war. Hence, in my opinion, their constant talk of fires and floods and storms. That's what the alert is for, so they tell us. Now, maybe I'm biased. My thinking on this has no doubt been 
twisted and tainted by years of being obsessed with nuclear war. So perhaps it's only natural that when I hear the government are introducing an emergency alert scheme, I instantly think it's because the threat of war is heightened. Well, I'm trying hard to push my obsession to one side and look at this clearly, but the threat of war surely is heightened by Russia. Is this not obvious? I'm not saying it's imminent, nothing like it, but it is surely heightened. And so I wonder why the government don't say so. Why they keep insisting that we suddenly need notification of all these fires and floods. The fact that they seem to be very obviously not mentioning it is what gets my antenna twitching. But there, I must have pushed my nuclear war obsession too far aside because I'm forgetting my own writing on this topic. Maybe we can't blame the government for not mentioning war. After all, I've defended them in this podcast and in my book for choosing not to send Protect and Survive out to all households in the early 80s. The fact that the government prepared that booklet and its associated films and then sat on it sparked a lot of conspiracy theories. Why are they keeping it from us? Why are they hiding it? What don't they want us to know? Twitter would have gone nuts with that today. The real reason is, of course, very humdrum and sensible. There was no precise and imminent threat of nuclear war. Sure, there was a general threat in the early 80s and points of terrible tension, but at no point, as far as we know, was the moment reached where the men in Whitehall decided, this is it, war is imminent, and Protect and Survive was intended for such a moment. Had they distributed it to every household and slapped the film on TV without war being imminent, then it could have, one, created panic, two, angered and provoked the enemy, or three, given that war didn't break out, everyone would eventually subside back into normal life, tuck the booklet away, and forget all about it. The government would then be the boy who cried wolf if and when they did need our attention for civil defence public information. By that point, the booklet and its contents would have been ignored, blunted, forgotten, lost their impact, been tucked away in the kitchen drawer beside the pizza menus. So the authorities in the early 80s, I believe, were right not to send out Protect and Survive, not to say to us, war is imminent, the threat of war is heightened, here is a practical piece of information and advice. Some of you may say it wasn't practical or useful, of course. And so maybe they're right now to avoid talking of war, for the reasons given above. Looking back to the early 80s, the government eventually gave into pressure and made a limited number of Protect and Survive booklets available for purchase. But without the fear and immediacy of having it drop onto every doormat across the country. They dipped their toe into the water, I suppose. And maybe that's the equivalent of our current emergency alert test. Soften the public up. Get them used to the notion that threats are out there. 
and you may, at some point, receive a, a horrible noise on your mobile to alert you to that threat. But it's not necessarily war. No one's saying war. It's not necessarily the big one. Not yet. Speaking of the distribution of Protect and Survive, perhaps making the public soft and casual and forgetful, maybe that is the thinking here with the refusal to mention war. For many of us in Britain, most of us I guess, war seems distant. War can't come here. So perhaps by pinning this alert to more obvious and known and visible things like flood and fire, it makes us take the alert more seriously. If it had been a revival of the air raid sirens, perhaps most of us would have laughed it off. But pinning it to things that we have all seen means it might be taken more seriously. And it gives the government an excuse, a reason, to use the alert. I'm sure that people in Cornwall or Yorkshire, for example, might be hearing that alert in the near future because they have areas susceptible to flooding. So the alert will be used, I assume, for its correct purpose. But if it was to be held back for war only, then it might be set up, a big fanfare, big palaver, big publicity blurt, and then, God willing, we'd never hear the thing again. And people would then moan that it was all a waste, bloody government wasting our money, why can't they use the money to feed the children, etc, etc. Its meaning would be lost in moaning, and in its lack of use. Floods and fires keep that noise relevant, unfortunately relevant. Floods and fires give it free PR. Floods and fires keep the public aware of it. During the Cold War, when our sirens sometimes went off by accident, and there are several incidents of that recounted in my book, people would be angry, upset, frightened. It was never, of course, thank God, put to its proper use. So the only reaction throughout the Cold War to that thing going off near you was fear, anger, negativity. It was never used properly. But this one, the emergency alert, will be because fires, floods, terrorist attacks sadly will occur. But maybe I am just paranoid. Maybe I'm just obsessed with war and that's why I'm scraping around in this for some kind of connection or link to war. Maybe it is just as the government say, it's a nice, handy alert to warn us of a whole range of dangers and troubles. Maybe I'm the one forcing war onto it. I remember doing something similar in my early days as a book reviewer for The Herald. I was reviewing a novel and um, I perceived it as an austerity novel. It was all about young people working in call centres, not being able to afford the rent, etc. And so I reviewed it saying this is one of the first austerity novels. But then I went on to criticise it for not being a particularly good austerity novel. But then the editor came back to me and said, uh, quite rightly, you can't criticise it for not being a good austerity novel. Because maybe the author didn't intend it to be an austerity novel. You can't blame him for not doing what you wanted. 
And maybe that's what I'm doing here. I'm assessing this thing as how useful it would be as a, a war alert. And the government might shrug and say, but as we said again and again, it's for bloody floods and fires. But then that brings me back to what I said at the start of this episode. The threat of war has obviously increased. You don't need to be some foreign affairs expert to arrive at that conclusion, I think it's obvious. It has increased. But if the government added that as one of the alert reasons, some people might panic. But then if they don't add it and don't speak of it, then people like me panic. As with the protect and survive debate of the early 80s, it seems that the government just can't win. But I wonder why now? Why introduce the alert now? Of course, it hasn't been cooked up over the course of a weekend. This thing has been in the planning for a few years now. And no doubt COVID helped spur things along. And maybe, maybe, NATO has given our government a nudge in the ribs, saying, come on, chaps, United Front and all that. Everyone else in NATO has some kind of alert system. Get with the programme. If that's the case, then that shows that we shouldn't ever have got rid of our sirens so quickly after the end of the Cold War. I'll read you a a short bit here from my book. This is from the book's epilogue, which is about our silly haste to decommission and strip all the sirens at the end of the Cold War. Much of Britain's Cold War civil defence planning had been shaped by the constant need to save money. And it was that same parsimony that meant her air raid sirens were dismantled with haste. In January 1993, the Home Office complained it would have cost £38 million to refurbish them and that the pesky contraptions would be gone by April. Vicars in their country churches and landlords in their rural pubs handed over the dusty boxes containing their handheld sirens and the larger ones were disconnected and hauled down from roofs and poles and bell towers across the land. This was how we marked the end of the Cold War. A few were left in place to be used as flood warnings, and they are still in use today, and can be heard in watery YouTube footage wailing over the wet rooftops of Hebden Bridge or Tormodon. Other sirens remain for no obvious reason. Perhaps they've been forgotten about, or lie in an awkward position, or are still waiting to be ticked off some crinkled council to-do list from 1993. These forgotten sirens are no longer powered, and the early warning system that fed them no longer exists. So there's no chance of them whirring into life and terrifying everyone. They are just frozen Cold War ghosts. You can find one atop a pole on a Lewisham street, poking up through the trees like a triffid. And there is another perched on a vandalised railway bridge outside Waterloo, silent and rusting and forgotten. But not by me. I seek them out. I hunt these ghosts and snap them with my camera. I track them on Google Street View. I zoom in, I scroll back. I click across the years and scrutinise them in Ruddy evening glow and cold morning lights. They fascinate me. They appall me. They are studied across Britain, bulbous, rusting reminders of what might have happened. 
and of what could happen still. In March 2022, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin ordered his country's nuclear forces onto high alert, and the Kiev skyline echoed to the old wail of the air raid siren. Yet it was not an old sound to the people of Kiev. Neither is it old to the population of Prague or Krakow or Stockholm, all of whom have maintained their siren networks and test them regularly. Germany conducted a nationwide test of its sirens in September 2020 on Warntag, Warning Day, the first time they had sounded since the end of the Cold War. Many European countries retained or are rejuvenating their siren networks, and with war raging in Europe again, and Putin's nukes on high alert, they are vindicated in those decisions. In Britain, having stripped most of our sirens and sold them for scrap, we need an alternative warning system. Since the end of the Cold War, we've been reliant on TV and radio alerts. We now have emergency alerts on our smartphones, but the buzz and beep of a mobile cannot dredge up the same anxiety we would feel on hearing a siren. The air raid siren delivers its dreadful message instantly as elemental as a dog's growl or a baby's cry. With a terrifying war back on European soil and the awful sense that the Cold War has revived, Britain's decision to dismantle its siren network seems hasty and short-sighted. A recognised, tried and tested warning system is needed. On that Pleasant Lewisham Street, the forgotten siren peeps through the leaves as if to say, I told you so. And that's from the epilogue of my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. And you can buy that now in hardback, ebook or audiobook. Now, whether Britain had thousands of sirens, a text alert system or no warning system at all, It's a certainty that someone, somewhere, will moan about it. And so it is with our recent test. The Conservative politician Jacob Rees-Mogg has, predictably, complained. He thinks the text alert is an example of the so-called nanny state. He said, quote, It is back to the nanny state, warning us, telling us, mollycoddling us, when instead... They should just let people go on with their lives and make sensible decisions for themselves. But one of his Conservative colleagues, Oliver Dowden, refuted that and tried to play down the whole nanny state thing, saying the test would be, quote, a bit like when the fire alarm goes off at work. So he's saying it's nothing to do with the nanny state, nothing to do with government interference, the government hanging over your life, telling you what to do. It's, quote, a bit like when the fire alarm goes off at work. Now, I don't like that comparison. I don't like it one bit. If you've read my book, you'll know about the American strategy during the Cold War of conventionalisation. That was a strategy to make the nuclear bomb seem normal, conventional ordinary, trying to get the public to accept it by likening it to normal things, ordinary things we have already experienced. 
and therefore making the threat of nuclear war seem normal and something to be accepted. They would do this by saying things like, sure, the atomic bomb could hurt you, but loads of things can hurt you. This is just one more. Sure, it can kill tens of thousands of people in one go, but so can loads of things. Did you know, anxious Americans, that more people were killed in the firestorm of Tokyo than in Hiroshima or Nagasaki? So this new bomb is just one more scary thing to add to a list. Nothing special. And that might be what Oliver Dowden was doing there, consciously or not. Likening the emergency alert to a fire drill in the office. Something ordinary and humdrum. Something that gives the workers an excuse to shuffle outside and have a chat and a cigarette. Something mildly inconvenient, but no big deal, really. It's something that's done for your benefit, of course. It's something useful, something practical. When you hear the fire alarm, you stand up from your desk and you head quickly but calmly for the exit. There is a routine to follow. There is an established pattern of behaviour to observe. And only a fool would ignore it. Well, is that not conventionalisation? The alert is just like the fire drill. Routine, standard, safety conscious. Who mentioned the war? Why bring war into it? Let's turn to the actual sound of the alert. The sound is crucial, obviously. It has to startle you. It has to unsettle you. It has to get your attention. It cannot sound like a, an ice cream van or a relaxing sleep sounds app. This thing has to frighten you. So there it is, similar to sounds used elsewhere, in America for example. It did scare me, even though I was ready for the test and was actually sitting watching my phone at 3pm exactly. When it sounded, I still jumped. But then any sudden noise bursting out into a quiet room would startle me. Moving aside my natural anxiety at any sudden loud noise, The sound itself is not a scary one. To me, it sounds like an 80s computer game. It sounds like my old Amstrad 464 is trying to load Jet Set Willy, but something is going wrong. It's a computer sound. It's a a sound from a Blackpool amusement arcade. It's not frightening. Well, you might say, give this sound a chance. You haven't yet learned to associate that sound with fear and danger. True, but consider our old friend the siren. That is a terrifying sound. And I don't think people had to learn to associate that with dread, because the dread is surely built in. The siren is a a rising and falling wail, like a... A werewolf, a banshee, a human in agony, it is elemental, as I mentioned in my book. It's a sound that we are surely wired to respond to.
There is no chance of mistaking that for Jet Set Willy. The sirens should scare you. I looked in the newspaper archive to find stories of people being scared and startled by the siren during the war, and I found plenty. There was one from July 1942, which tells of an animal being startled by it. Horse in bedroom was the headline, so I thought, okay, this will be funny. But uh, no, it's, uh, it's not funny. I'll read you the story now. Um, but I will replace the horse's name as it had a name which we would now consider very offensive. So I will call the horse Ian, so that people don't shout at me. Horse in bedroom. Scared by air raid siren. An old soldier who makes a living with a horse and cart was aroused by the air raid siren early one morning and on going into the stable at the back of his house, was surprised to find no sign of Ian the horse. Hearing a noise in the bedroom above, he went upstairs and there found the cob, apparently scared by the siren, taking refuge. The fire brigade was summoned and tried to lower the horse with sling and tackle through a window space, but unfortunately it fell out of the sling and broke its leg and had to be shot. As Ian was his sole means of livelihood, the British Legion saw to it that he got another cob. Now, I wonder if Ian, the horse, would have been similarly shocked and eventually killed by a bleeping mobile phone. There is certainly something unique and oppressive about the air raid siren. My friend and fellow Cold War nerd Mike Kenner recently tweeted about the sirens and he remembers them being tested during the Cold War and he said it felt like the sky was pressing down on you. So it's not just a noise when those things go off, it's a a sensation, an oppressive, smothering, panicky sensation. Likewise, in the newspaper archives, I found someone from the Spanish Civil War who said when the siren goes off, it's like the sound is chasing you down the street. And speaking of how frightening the noise could be, I found an article from the Evening Standard from September 1943, which reported on a town, an unnamed town, in Sussex, where, quote, the air raid sirens never sound even when enemy aircraft are overhead, because, say the townspeople, the sirens would scare the old ladies. The article goes on to say, the sirens have only sounded twice in the town. On both occasions, back in September 1939, the first week of the war, obviously, and, quote, it is said that on those two occasions, the townspeople were so alarmed that it was decided never to sound the sirens again. Now, (laughs) that would annoy me if I lived in that town. So, I am not to be given any warning of the approaching jerrys? Well, the, the nervous town folk had another solution. Quote, Instead, a piece of red cloth is hung over a hedge outside the ARP controller's post in the high street when danger threatens overhead. 
<laughs> I'll quote further from this article because it's great. At the station hotel today, I asked the landlord why the sirens were no longer sounded. He shook his head sadly and said, I don't know, but they say it scared the old ladies so. A customer chimed in. That's right. One of them is said to have died from shock. The town did have air raid shelters, but they were never used because no one knew when to use them. One civil defence worker told the paper that if the wind is blowing in the right direction, they might faintly hear the siren from neighbouring towns. And of course, the trusty red cloth hanging in the high street gives them a sign. (laughs) So, an alert or a warning, it has to be stark and frightening and unsettling. It should scare the old ladies. It should scare all of us. But for maximum effectiveness... It should also be tethered to something. During the war, and on into the Cold War, the siren in Britain meant war, aerial attack. This new mobile alert Britain has just tested lacks menace, I would say, but it also lacks obvious meaning. It's not tethered to any specific threat. It just means what? Something Bad is happening somewhere. It might be a national threat, or it might be something local. Could be thermonuclear war, or a bit of local flooding. Is it right that one sound will be used for everything? Isn't there perhaps a risk of overexposure? If you live in a flood-prone area, maybe you'll hear it so often that you won't react quickly and immediately if the day does come when the alert is used for the big one. It's a bit like the BBC News website's breaking news banner. It flashes up bright red on the screen and I think, oh God, what now? And so often it's nothing much. A politician made a statement, an actor died, inflation has gone up, Sure, if these are news stories, then technically they are breaking news, but to present them to us in that way suggests shocking, scary, listen up. Overuse of that phrase, breaking news, is weakening its impact. Perhaps it will be likewise with this alert. It can mean too many things, and it might be used too often. So how do we know when, if, it's war or something equally as cataclysmic. 